Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today I am joined by Professor Frank Furede, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, whose path-breaking work on fear and risk is of fundamental importance in these telltale times we are living today. Hello, Frank, and welcome. Hi there, Christoph. Hi. Hello. So although your work has a remarkable broad spectrum of interests, and it would have been lovely to have been able to have a conversation on today's higher education and its many, many pitfalls, as this is a team that we are at PICT very particularly interested in. But I think you can understand that my focus will be, as I already hinted at, on your research and studies of fear. Research you started not yesterday, but almost three decades ago. Now, I have to admit that I had the quaintest of feelings when I was recently rereading your 90. A 1997 book, Culture of Fear. Whilst I was reading, it felt like I was reading some sort of manual, a sort of script of what was going on today. And if one thing was very clear after my reading, even if we might not have noticed in the past decades that we were living in a culture of fear, I think that by now there are no more doubts and that we, it is absolutely clear that we are. But anyway, before allowing me to pick your brain a little bit, about some more detailed aspects of your research. Would you mind uh, explaining a little bit your the big lines of your theory of fear for your listeners? Well, I think one of the um, things that I was always interested in is the way in which fear had become detached from any specific threat. So it was no longer the case that you were you know, afraid of starving to death or your fear was of an earthquake or you feared a particular illness. Uh, when I began to do my work, I began to realize that the uh, emotion of fear was used in our culture in such a way that it could attach itself to just about every uh, human experience. And I noticed that as, as this thing was evolving, that increasingly, particularly in the Anglo-American world, um, people were told not just simply to be afraid, but also they were told that things are far more uh, dangerous than we suspect. So you had this kind of worst case scenario language that really kicked in sort of very, very fast. And uh, I drew the conclusion that what we had here was uh, not so much the case that people may actually feared, physically feared more than ever before, but that the culture was kind of disposing people to react to uncertainty and new experiences through a narrative of fear. And that was, I think, to me, a very interesting and and a very unique uh, development in, in human history. Um, one of the things um, that, that, that struck me most is that uh, when, I, when I was reading through it, it wasn't as, as much the, the narrative that was, or was just being told or the decisions that were being taken, not even the reaction of the people that made me think uh, that you were absolutely right about the culture of fear, but that there was no, uh, how could you say it, correspondence between these narratives of fear or that there didn't need to be a correspondence between the narratives of fear and an actual personal experience uh, of fear. And that one of the other aspects that was so important is was that, that there's this risk calculus 
as if, again, that actual fear uh, didn't count so much anymore. Yeah, I, th I think it is interesting that uh, although we are meant to experience fear very personally, and indeed we have a much more uh, atomized, individuated sense of fear than ever before, so that everybody fears a little bit differently than, uh, than, than other people. Uh, nevertheless, you know, despite our very personal form of fear, we fear about things that we have very often never experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, we fear things that, or at least we are told to fear things that may have uh, been a problem in a different part of the world. And as a result of that, what tends to happen is that there's a kind of uh, expansive psychological territory between ourselves as individuals and the targets of our fear, where our imagination and our concerns have a lot of kind of space to kind of play themselves out. And, and it's almost a bit like we have a high technology variation of old concerns about witchcraft or about demons, you know, in the, the dark ages, uh, which, you know, were experienced very personally, even though it had nothing to do with them as individuals, even though it was something that they heard about, rather than uh, being something that was integral to their personal experience. And I think that the one interesting point that you mentioned here that that's related to this is that our idea what a risk is and, and, and the need to calculate risks, you know, sort of in, in, in fact conveys the message that risk is by definition a, a bad thing, a, a negative phenomenon. And that was something I find very amusing because growing up as a child, my father would always talk about, hey, Frank, this is really good. This is a good risk. Go for it. Or he would suggest that this is a neutral risk. It wasn't just simply every risk was bad. And I grew up uh, being told to take risks. That was part of my uh, you know, sort of maturation. That's how I became an adult, by learning how to take risks. Whereas now, what are personal and moral decisions are reduced to this technical function of calculating risks. You know, numerically, which you know obviously makes a nonsense of the of the decisions we have to make of our life. Yeah, and I I think this kind of easily goes into my next question and about the risk. Um, if there is one thing that struck me a lot is is in fact the the overpresence in this culture of fear of a constant misanthropy. Of, of this great dislike and, and even distrust in, in our capacities as human, as human beings, be they rational, civic, or simply also physical, like how your father told you to, to take a risk and try it, or also psychologically. I think you went a step further than the majority of scholars who have written about what one could call the medicalization of our Western societies, and I think that was, that was very much needed. But anyway, it made me think a lot about what happened and could well start over again in a couple of weeks. For example, I lived for a very long time in Italy. And so I heard a lot of my friends and acquaintances in these past weeks. And it always surprised me how many people agreed with the extremely harsh measures that were taken in Italy, simply because they didn't trust their fellow countrymen. Uh, now, this is what I heard about Italy, but I can imagine, and, and it wouldn't struck me, strike me as, as, as uh, unbelievable, that this discourse went on in almost all the countries. This, they don't trust their fellow men, 
they don't trust even their, their own neighbors who they probably know. And that's why they approve of these harsh measures. But, but what's about this misanthropy? What's about this, this fear or this disliking of, of ourselves? Can you say something more about this? Well, I think that for some time now, there's been a very uh, powerful mood of misanthropy where uh, essentially uh, we kind of regard human beings uh, as principally a problem rather than a solution to the problems facing the world. So the, the very language that, that we use, for example, about human beings uh, tends to kind of convey a very negative uh, story. Uh, it's, it's best summed up by, I don't know if, if you have the same uh, expression in French, but in English we have the expression where we talk about the human impact on the environment. Mm. And you know, there used to be a time when you think about you know, the humanization of the environment, what we call the socialization of nature, as a positive uh, sort of inspiring story. Whereas now when we're talking about human impact, we kind of talk about it in a very kind of corrosive, destructive way. So, you know, a lot of people argue that, you know, you know, that rather than being a blessing, the more people there are on the globe, the greater the impact, the, the worse the problem. And some people have argued for birth control or population control on that basis. I, I've even seen uh, arguments that claim that uh, when you have a new baby, if you have more than two babies uh, in Australia, you need to put a, a carbon tax on the baby. So rather than seeing that little baby as a wonderful new life, you see the little baby as a, as a consumer of carbon. And I think that kind of uh, uh, sensibility doesn't just simply link to the environment, it, it, li it links to human relationships, mm. where, um, again, in the English language, I mean, it's best summed up by the uh, proliferation of the usage of the term toxic. Mm -hmm. So we talk about toxic relationships, toxic marriages, toxic masculinity, you know, sort of toxicity becomes this idea that we, we almost kind of contaminate one another as human beings, almost uh, have this kind of poisonous quality about us. And I think that mistrust of one another uh, ultimately is related to uh, a kind of self-loathing where we don't trust ourselves. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much linked to the way we see ourselves. And it's, it involves a, a very radical redefinition of what a human being is, what a person is, and in many respects, it's this radical redefinition of what we think a human person is, or to use a, a sociological jargon, what personhood is, uh, that explains why it is that we've got this very diminished sense of human potential, human capacity that underpins uh, the culture of fear. That's the kind of subjective basis on which the culture of fear flourishes. And, and another thing that, that, that connected to this, there's also, and, and you point that out numerous times, that almost every, but not almost every, but a, a lot of, of, of normal, of, of experiences that we used to have now have become medicalized. I already hinted at that before, but also in, in, in your, your work on fear, there's an, an, an incredible insistence on this psychological, how can you call it, psychological, psychological problematic uh, growth of psychological problems or the medicalization. Of, of our normal lives, like everything needs to become a disease or, or is covered with, with problems. I read, I think today, that 
people are already starting to talk no longer as being happy about coming out of this COVID, but that a lot of people will have a mental disability. So also the joy of not longer being confined in your house is now also becoming uh, medicalized in a certain sense. Yes, I think it's one of the unfortunate developments. It's uh, it's almost what I call the diseasing of everyday life, mm. where um, problems that we used to see as being normal problems of life or existential problems, you know, that may cause you a bit of distress. Uh, for example, you know, you and I can go to a party. Uh, everybody's having fun, but you and I are a little bit shy, so we stand in the corner. And we, and we feel uncomfortable, but we don't call that shy anymore. We call that social phobia. <laughs> or, you know, you could be like I was when I was 11 and 12, you know, always running around, rushing around, throwing things around and everything else, just a very active boy. Mm. I would be uh, I would be told I got some attention deficit syndrome that I'm suffering from. Yes. And and the really interesting thing is, is that when you look at you know everything that is a little bit unusual, it comes with a diagnosis and mm. we kind of as a result of that what we've done and this is something I'm you know I've been working on recently is that when children grow up they uh, almost uh, are educated and socialized into this psychological worldview to the point that by the time they're 10 or 11 they have a very sophisticated uh, uh, sort of uh, psychological uh, sort of vocabulary and I always remember when my son was, you know, nine and ten, coming home from school, and I would be really surprised that he used words like "Oh, Dad, I'm really stressed out," <laughs> or "I'm very anxious," or "I'm depressed," you know. Mm. Sort of, and you kind of wonder where well, where do they pick up these words? It's not like they've gone to the library and read Freud or Jung. <laughs> then you realize that it's their teachers who, in a sense, uh, teach them to think in this very internal-looking, self-absorbed kind of a way, and. We have this very big problem now in the Anglo-American world where every single year the mental health presentations are just expanding. I mean, they they make the current pandemic that we have positively limited compared to the pandemic of mental health illnesses that are erupting. And unfortunately, what happened is that if people are told they're mentally confused or disoriented, they will play the part that's assigned to them because the self fulfilling prophecy so that mm -hmm. by the time they're 18 or 19, they do feel very fragile rather than having that aspiration for independence that you hope they would have, you know, as they kind of make their way into the world. And and, and then they, they get the, the force of the victim, which is no longer something that you want to throw away after you've been through, but it needs to become something that you carry along with you for the rest of your life as some sort of banner of being proud of, of having been a victim. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's the uh, idea of vulnerability, something you hurl at other people. Mm. Uh, and sometimes you have competition. I, I had this really horrific experience. Uh, two years ago, I gave a lecture in uh, Galway in Ireland. And um, I was talking about the way in which, you know, sort of uh, a lot of young girls, for example, uh, in schools are, are cutting themselves. You know, sort of, and then these three women come up to me afterwards who are all, you know, sort of therapists and said, look, Frank, you think you got a problem. The problem that we have is that we sometimes, you know, sort of get girls coming in to see us and they're kind of competing with each other as to who has more cuts on their arms. Okay. Because the ones that, that that's kind of the biggest victim with the most scars, you know, enjoys being on top of the social hierarchy. 
So you got this kind of really bizarre way in which victimization becomes something you embrace rather than something you want to kind of flee from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's not just our, ourselves that we don't seem to trust. We also don't seem to trust, and, and this also comes from, from your work, and especially has, has, is, is related to, to the topic of fear, obviously. Um, we don't seem to trust our future either. Uh, I think, well, how, how I see it, is that there's this weird combination uh, that seems to be reigning uh, our thoughts about the future. And, and it's a weird combination because it goes beyond... Uh, all uh, ideological divides that, that one can imagine. And so what the combination, with, how I see it, is that in the one hand, there's this um, of, of Thatcher and lineage, the, the Tina ideology, that there is no alternative. And then on the other hand, there's the, if one can call it more leftist-based idea, that the future is going to get worse because of capitalism, because of our disrespect for nature, and so on and so on. But then my question is, how did this idea of a dystopia, this dystopian future become our main, almost our sole means to think and guide our actions about the future? Even so that, and, and as I can even say here, as you predicted, that complete nonsensical negativities about the future can also become used, or they can become some sort of promotion for civilized behavior which is obviously very similar to what is today's lockdown strategy, using something quite nonsensical to guide people through their behavior. Um, you call this correctly the pre precautionary principle. Uh, can you say something more about this, how this principle, and, and also how this principle became uh, almost our sole guidance? Well, I think there's two elements. I think the, the, what you call the Tina ideology, there is no alternative. Um, which is a, it's really another word for fatalism, mm. you know, which is basically the idea that human subjectivity uh, cannot make history. You know, human beings don't make the history, they become the objects of history. And there's only one way, you, you have to defer to your fate. And as you say, that's something that now transcends the entire politic, political divide from left to right. I think that has really uh, flourished you know, tremendously. And it, it really kind of came about uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, when other forms of ideologies, you know, communism, socialism, liberalism, all these other things, which, which had a positive view of the future, at least had some, you know, reasonably good view of the future, became very weak and discredited. And I think at that point, you had a situation where, um, the, you know, in, in the absence of any future-oriented political ideologies, you know, you were left with uh, this uh, vacuum of, you know, how are you going to regard un the uncertain days and years ahead of us? You know, how do you deal with uncertainty? And it seems to me that it, it was the, the uh, refusal, the inability of, of many commentators and policymakers to hang, uh, manage uncertainty and to confront uncertainty that led to the elaboration of the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle basically uh, is based on the fact that, you know, uh, that what you got to do is to see things from the worst possible scenario. That, uh, you know, you shouldn't be able to uh, bring drugs on the market unless you're 120% certain that it would have no side effects. Mm -hmm. 
and you mustn't uh, sort of innovate technologies unless you can be absolutely clear what's going to happen with it. So what you really are saying is that unless you can guarantee that something is going to turn out perfectly well, you know, and 100% good, you know, you, you need to access caution. And the trouble with that is that it sounds very sensible, but of course, if we all adopted that approach, you know, sort of in the past, you know, we wouldn't have aspirin. In this. And uh, the innovation of a drug like aspirin could not occur under this existing regime of, of precaution. And similarly, you know, if we adopted this kind of precautionary approach, you couldn't uh, take the kind of risks that uh, students need to, to do serious research. For example, I'm a sociologist, and a lot of the most important classical texts in sociology, particularly in criminology, involve people uh, doing fieldwork with criminal gangs, mm. or spending a year with drug dealers, <laughs> or, or finding out how people at the edge of society were living. Mm. Uh, now today, uh, the university ethics committees that assess risk would not allow students to do that anymore. Mm. Uh, that's completely uh, forbidden. We have a, an intolerance towards risk because we have institutionalized caution to the point at which we become extremely uh, conservative, not in, in the political sense, in the, in the small c sense of, mm -mm. of of not really trying anything out, of of, of, of of fearing to experiment. And it's almost like we've uh, gone the opposite direction to the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. because the you know the, the the main motto of the Enlightenment was dare to know. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of daring anything uh, under the precaution their principle is associated with irresponsibility. Mm -mm -mm. And I think that that kind of uh, culture uh, really pervades large part of our life at the moment and something that we need to uh, seriously confront and challenge because it's mm. not doing us very much good. No, it closes everything off like we see today. Uh, anyway, a little bit more uh, to today's uh, world. If I were to put some of your more thought-provoking ideas that could be brought into the focus of today's pandemic. And I'm meaning here, for example, that fear-mongering lets solutions lose their relevance, or that a culture or action based on panic demonstrates a loss of faith in rational reasoning, or a final one that social isol isolation, what is happening now, actually augments the image and the sensation of a world at risk. Would I be correct to state that you stand highly critical not of what is happening today uh, biological-wise, that is with the virus, but certainly about the means through which this pandemic has been confronted. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I can understand that people worry a lot, and it, this is a very serious problem uh, that we're confronted with. A global pandemic does take its toll and, and, and needs to be um, very carefully evaluated. But I think what has happened is that we had this kind of response, almost like as if we're fighting the Third World War, where you need to basically mobilize everything and, and respond in such a way that you don't, you lose sight of the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about a virus, right? And we had many viruses before. It, 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 it doesn't really call into question human existence. 
you know, it's a very serious threat that, you know, for some section of society. And instead of uh, responding to it in a much more nuanced, targeted kind of a way, we just locked down the world and we just gave away our freedom and we just stopped trusting ourselves in, in being able to use common sense to deal with some of these things. And by adopting this uh, uh, sort of blanket rule, I, I do think that we've uh, created a lot of problems because it made people far more scared than they had to be mm-hmm. and it paralyzed you know, their behavior. It has led to a, an incredibly uh, damaging cycle of uh, economic destruction, which has got a very, very long term consequences. And the tragedy is, is that, you know, you know, after making all these mistakes, uh, we're just ready to make even more because we haven't actually learned the lessons yet. And uh, just imagine if we have another, a second wave, where we have another series of infections, you know, what is going to be the uh, consequence of that? I, I don't want to think about that, honestly. Um, and we don't have to, at least not for the moment. Um, to conclude, and maybe in a, in a more positive note, one of the, the best things I like about uh, your work on fear is that you don't just stop writing after you have re- described what you think is wrong or better what you think is the case. You're also there to put yourself, yourself out there and list some of the things that could possibly help us out of this culture of fear that is suffocating us. So maybe sharing some of these points of departure to enter into a less fearsome future might actually be a good end to our conversation here. Well, I think we need to reappropriate the resources of humanism and, uh, and put a far greater valuation on the human potential to create and to construct and to problem solve. And I think we need to encourage the attitude of experimentation. Uh, we need to uh, uh, sort of see uh, people as, as solutions rather than as problems. But also, very importantly, uh, we need to challenge certain of the value. I think the main value that, that, that dominates the Western world is this obsession with safety. And I think that uh, when people regard safety as not just simply something they want, but also as a, as a moral uh, value in its own right, then that, that does close people's eyes. Because if once you begin to get obsessed with safety, it becomes a never-ending quest. You always look for even more safety, and you never feel safe, because the more you obsess about it, the less secure you feel. I, I think, for me, the really important thing is to uh, educate young children in some of the classical humanist virtues, like courage, for example. I think courage is a very important antidote to fear. It's one of the best ways that we get the confidence to deal with fear. And I think that we have, in our in our legacy of uh, intellectual and humanist legacies, we've got a lot of ideals that we can reappropriate and make make it make them work for us in the 21st century. So that's what I would like to do. I would like to see uh, a, a real serious cultural battle against the very defensive, the, the very uh, sort of uh, uh, medicalized view of, the hu- of humanity that we have at the moment and adopt a much more forward-looking, optimistic, future-oriented one, which I think, you know, uh, will make our life better, you know, we'll be better human beings, we'll have more, you know, we we'll enjoy life a little bit more, but also, uh, in a sense, we all of us would feel 
uh, in a sense, a, a much greater ability to believe that we are authors of our destiny rather than simply objects. Well, thank you very much for these words, Professor Furili. Thank you for being us, uh, for being here with us at Picked Voices, and thank you all for listening. Pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>